electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla, along with Deirdre Bosa and John Ford today. Ahead, we're going to speak with the CEOs of three big movers today. Twilio surging on earnings and this buyback announcement. Synopsis guiding below as the chip sector does remain challenging. And Toast uh, gets burned down 20-plus percent after a wider-than-expected loss. And opening the door for more gains, DoorDash up 43 percent this year ahead of its earnings after the bell. We've got a preview. Very busy session on the micro and the macro deep. It is indeed. And we begin with a look at today's markets. Investors, they're digesting that hotter than expected PPI report, weaker than expecting housing numbers and hawkish commentary from Fed President Mester. The losses across the board with every sector lower, although, as David Faber just said, we are well off the lows. Uh, right now, you can see the Dow Industrials down about seven tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq comp only down about half a percent. On the flip side, though, yields are shooting higher with the 10 year back above three point eight percent. We are now getting some news out of the New York Fed. Let's get over to Steve Leisman. Steve. Thanks, Judy. Yeah, the New York Fed in its fourth quarter household debt and credit report reporting that debt surged by $394 billion in the fourth quarter. That is the largest increase in two decades. Breaking it down, mortgages up a strong $254 billion. Credit cards up $61 billion, the largest quarterly increase in the history of the survey going back to 1999. Auto loans up and student loans as well. Now, as far as delinquencies, they did tick up for credit cards, auto loans, and mortgages. But the rate or the level remains at or below the pre-pandemic level. Trouble is the transition into them. There have been some worrying increases into the transition of delinquency rates. So a blog by the New York Fed, the company this report says, Credit card borrowers are missing their payments and transitioning to 90-plus day delinquency at a rate higher than they had before the pandemic. Guys, all we can do is watch this. We don't know how much stress there is, but certainly there is some increasing reliance by households on debt. Plus, you have the uh, uh, higher interest rates, and that's part of the reason why mortgage, mortgage total balances may be going up. Steve, might we be boiling the consumer frog here? I mean, with inflation ahead of expectations, right? Stuff is still kind of expensive out there. And then with the credit card uh, usage being higher and the interest rates are higher and the Fed, you know, people are saying, I heard you this morning, that the Fed is going to have to keep raising for a longer period of time. I mean, that's a vice that's tightening later in the year, isn't it? John, John, I I want to reject your metaphor of comparing the consumer to a frog but I can accept your premise that that is certainly something that's happening out there. Um, I think the idea, you do have strong job growth, you've had strong wage growth, um, and so there is scope for consumers to bring on additional credit. You also have this idea that if people believe inflation is temporary, they could use credit to what they call smooth out their spending and their lifestyle over time. Um, It gets into trouble if people lose their jobs, lose their ability to pay those uh, balances as well. That's where you get into trouble. Your delinquencies have really not 
become worrisome or recessionary levels yet. The hmm. thing to watch, the way I compare it, John, is think about a lake, which, okay, the water level of the lake is below where it was the pandemic. That's the total debt level. The flow into the lake is higher than it was before. So we have to watch this 90-plus delinquency transition rate. And uh, the um, New York Fed in the blog, John, pointing out that it's especially difficult or high among younger borrowers. Okay, we got a lake. we got frogs. we got a vice. I don't do mixed drinks very often, but I do like to mix my metaphors. Steve Leisman, thank you. Uh, well, it might not be playing out today, but so far this year, it's been a risk-on rally particularly in growth and speculative names, but with so many stocks rallying 40, 50, even 60% to start the year, how can investors in identify the long-term winners and avoid names that might come crashing down? Well, on the heels of Palantir's surprise profit this week and the massive surge in its share price, CNBC ran a screener on companies that might surprise investors by becoming profitable sooner than thought. Christina Parsonevelis has been looking through those names and has some for us. Christina, hey. John, I'm not going to use metaphors. I'm going to do, start with tongue twisters. I'm calling it potential profit anomalies. Our criteria for the list were names with a market cap of above at least 500 million bucks, high net cash flow as a percentage of total debt. So a high ratio means they can better pay down their debt and they have not had a positive quarter of earnings on a gap basis. New Holdings, a digital banking platform, tops the list for their ability to pay down debt. It's a five bucks stock and it's still 56% off its 52-week high, but there are some other names that we you may have heard of that top the list, cloud company Snowflakes. Earnings are out March 1st. Duolingo, CrowdStrike, which is still more than 50% off its 52-week high. And it's not just health uh, tech names. you got healthcare name like Oscar Health, food delivery firm DoorDash. I know Deirdre will be covering that when its earnings come out after the bell. And many analysts have been raising estimates for that name in particular. Our team on the pro side also pulled out another list of unprofitable names that are expected by Wall Street analysts to turn a profit later this fiscal year. Bio firm Certera tops that list along with clothing firm Figs and Dole, which is down over 20% just in the last year or so, but announced a few weeks ago it was selling its fresh vegetable division to to Chiquita, which should bring in millions to pay down debts. The big question that we're looking at, and we listed a few names, who's going to be the next Palantir? Right. Interesting screen, Christine. Also, you know, you got to look at the quality of profitability as well. Right. Something you mentioned, I covered the gig economy. Right. They tout profitability, but really that's adjusted EBITDA profitability. In this screener, you looked at gap profitability. Is that right? That is correct. And that's an and excellent that point. Decision? I know we 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 don't want to bring up WeWork because it's such a small company, but they too were, you know, their headline was that they turned a, a profit in December, core profit, but that was EBITDA. EBITDA, so adjusted EBITDA, and, and often that's not trusted. I know you, especially Dee, you have talked about this a lot on air, that it's uh, accounting earnings, right? And uh, it doesn't really reflect the true profit profitability, which is why there's so many different ways to screen for these names, but they do top a lot of lists. Christina, thanks for that luck. Uh, a great way of sorting through what's happening in the market right now when investors are so concerned with profitability. John and Carl, um, I guess that's a point, too. Investors are concerned with profitability right now, but does it come at the expense of revenue growth? And maybe that's a question starting to be asked a little more. Um, does uh, the market turn to that kind of top-line growth to continue the rally, cost cuts, profitability have got us here. But we've been talking a lot about sort of these enormous moves we've seen in unprofitable names early this year. So what comes next? You look at a Twilio. I know we're going to talk to the CEO soon. But that profitability has, it looks like, come at the expense of slower revenue growth. And that begs the question, John, I know you talked about this earlier, too. And you're, on the other hand, 
Is there room for innovation still if you're just pleasing the shorter term investors? Well, yeah, I mean, that tends to be how it works. Like the way to get profitable faster is you don't invest as much in driving growth. And there are downsides on either end. I guess if the company's model works, then they get to choose how much they step on the gas, right, versus how much they ease off. But if you don't grow top line as much and a competitor manages to corner the market, Carl, it's kind of like a game of risk. Sometimes you can enjoy your profits for a while, but then if your competitor manages to sort of block you off and corner the market, you could be in a bad position competitively. That's exactly what uh, Cisco's Chuck Robbins uh, said to us uh, earlier this morning right here. In fact, while tech has seen a boom uh, so far this year, there's been this divergence between consumer spending and corporate spending. Uh, Big institutions are spending on tech. Cisco's up today on this post-earnings pop. Company does guide up for the fiscal third quarter and full year. They raise the quarterly dividend. And while they did see some backlog increases year on year, Robbins told us that orders are still coming in. This last quarter was the third highest Q2 in the history of the company from an orders perspective. So it, it didn't feel like, you know, this thing is falling off a cliff by any stretch. Uh, and so when you combine the RPO and the fact that we have revenue on our balance sheet that's coming off every quarter, with orders remaining stable and with our backlog, we have a high degree of visibility and feel confident. John, to your point, uh, Robbins told us as a CEO, uh, the mindset is if I stop investing now, particularly in technology, my competitors may not. And I could find myself at a disadvantage in a real hurry. That's part of the mindset going on. Those are Robbins' words. Yeah, yeah. Uh, important words. And I mean, Cisco's quarter, good quarter, D, but it was a little bit noisy on this count. Order growth actually wasn't so good. And a big part of what they're doing now that's causing these outsized revenues, not just in the quarter they just reported, but the current quarter they're expecting is they're shipping out a lot of product that customers ordered when supplies were tight, and now they've got it. So they're working down that backlog, and you just got to wonder what happens when they work through all that. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that it's somewhat cloudy uh, quarter and investors are looking at the bull case. We've seen that a lot this week when it comes to Palantir, even Airbnb. Um, The results may be good, but are they really that good? I liked his comments, Carl, uh, on a recession. He says we only really talk about it when we're facing you guys on CNBC and you're asking us about it. But that is a nice position to be in because other CEOs in the enterprise hardware, software space, they lean on that a lot. They lean on the macro and say that it's a tough environment. So I guess Cisco is kind of telling us the story, too, of what's nice to have, what's need to have, and maybe there's somewhere more on the need to have side. Carl. Uh, yep. The, uh, the tech bulls would argue, D, that uh, at least there's a balance uh, at this point uh, going forward that maybe in the past we were leaning on one side of the revenue profit uh, equation and maybe companies now have found some sort of safer middle ground. We'll see. Yeah. Well, on the other side, as we speak of it, we do have Shopify. Shopify. Despite beating on the top and bottom lines, that stock is sinking. It's down more than 15 percent. Revenue growth guide falling short of the street's expectations. And the company saying that the macro environment is weighing on consumer spending. President Harley Finkelstein joined Squawk on the street last hour, saying the company is prepared to weather the storm. Have a listen. I was surprised by the, by the reaction from the market from our Q4. We showed great growth on the top line. We also showed growth on, on the bottom line. And all the while, we're, we're making these changes, like some of these layoffs that, that, again, not fun to do, but that isn't necessary. We're taking our medicine because we want to be a long-term, you know, 100-year company. 
Okay, so this points to exactly the other side of the conversation we're having, John, is a company that has been investing for the long term, um, is taking a hit on sort of that profitability profile and is paying for it in the market, at least in the short term. I guess the question is, does that set them up to be a longer term play when it does things like it doesn't engage with Buy With Prime, that product from Amazon that it's competing with? Does it have to sort of hold strong on competitive fronts and take the hit in the short term for that long term proposition? D, bear with me today because it's Thursday and that means it's on the other hand day. And (laughs) these Shopify results, I mean, yeah, it's down big, 15%. (laughs) <laughs> is a lot, but uh, you got to put an asterisk by it because they've got a new CFO, right? They got a new CFO, and when a CFO comes in, they like to sort of set the floor. There might be some sandbagging going in on here. Q4 was actually really good, beat across numerous metrics. There was no reason to believe that the quarters ahead won't also be pretty good. When you got a new CFO, they need to establish their credibility and be able mm-hmm. to outperform what they promise. So just for the investors out there, be careful about, you know, maybe this is a bit of a conservative guide. We'll see. Carl. Uh, We asked Harley directly whether or not um, Headcount D uh, is going to be further cut. Remember, they were very early in the layoff trend going back to last July. Uh, but he did think that uh, headcount would remain steady for the rest of the year. Didn't really suggest more cuts. So it'll be yeah. interesting to see whether we're at a period now where that is sort of in the past, where the players who need to do it have done it, uh, barring right. uh, anything else. And if this rising rate environment uh, continues for a long time, that, that might get revisited. And, John, you got me thinking about that new CFO, so I looked up where he comes from. Morgan Stanley spent over two decades in its technology investment banking group, so he's a Wall Street guy. Maybe investors can hold a belief that he's going to be more financially disciplined. Yeah, and in this environment, you're probably not going out on a limb and over-promising. I don't, hey, I don't know, but just, you know, we'll see next quarter. All right, so to come this hour, a trio of earnings interviews. CEO Twilio is with us. That stock is surging, recently announcing a 17% cut, ouch, to its workforce. Plus, we are joined by the CEO of a $50 billion market cap chip designer, or rather they uh, provide the software for designing chips. Synopsis reporting results. Weak guidance has shares under pressure. And then finally, restaurant payment platform Toast, seeing its stock burned. Another exclusive interview coming your way this hour. Tech Check, just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. 
Welcome back to Tech Check. Let's get to, to today to one of today's bright spots. Twilio is up some 20% today, um, bringing yearly gains north of 60%. And that is after the company locked in its first billion-dollar quarter, beating revenue estimates there and announcing $1 billion in share buybacks. The report comes as Twilio announced plans to cut 17% of its workforce, and that is in addition to its 11% reduction back in September. Joining us now in an exclusive interview, Twilio CEO Jeff Lawson. Jeff, good morning. It feels like you're doing all the things that the street is looking for, a buy back, better profitability. We were just having this conversation, though, at the start of the show. How do you balance that with revenue growth and innovation? Your organic growth in Q1 is calling for 13 to 14 percent, and that is lower than your medium target of 15 to 20. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on the show. And you're right. You know, there is a decision you make between investing and some of those investments that can result in accelerated growth. I don't think it's uh, purely a matter of, you know, one versus the other because you have to have the right investments. And so I think during a time like this where companies are really reconfiguring, taking substantive actions like we've taken to adjust to a new environment that we're in to get profitable more quickly, you really take a harder look at those investments and say which ones are contributing to the revenue growth and to the profitability of the company. And that that's the important thing. Regarding Q1, I want to remind you, though, that we have a usage-based revenue model, right? So that's a little bit different than a lot of companies that are subscription-based, right? Because it reflects the underlying usage of our platform by companies who are our customers. And so we see an accelerated headwind during a time like this, which is unfortunate, but it's true. But it means we also have the ability to see an accelerated tailwind when we when economic recovery returns. And I think when that does, what you'll see is that we're well prepared, a more fit company, a more focused company, um, and a more profitable company to be able to capitalize on a return to uh, economic growth in the macro economy. Oh, well, Jeff, that's clearly uh, what the street's anticipating, uh, not just the guide on, on OperNet. But uh, I guess the question would be, uh, how will you know? You I mean, you've already done a lot of difficult work uh, in terms of managing costs. How will you know when it's time to lean into the gas a little again? Well, I mean, I think what you'll see is that we are focused on really looking and scrutinizing our investments, making sure that we're making the right investments, that we're getting the right ROI from those investments. And in particular, you know, I point to uh, on the communication side of our business, you know, one of the things we did is we split into two business units. And on the communication side, we're really focused on efficiency. And we feel we can grow that business with the product doing more heavy lifting, with a more product-led growth strategy, and that can grow with less spend going in. And on the flip side, we've got a data and applications business. And this is a smaller business. It's about $400 million today. Um, but we see this as the earliest stages of market penetration. And so we're continuing to invest there quite a bit in order to grow the penetration of segment, our CDP product, engage our marketing automation product, and flex our contact center platform. Jeff, um, Twilio's dual class structure is set to sunset this year, and so that could potentially mean less voting power for you as the CEO, potentially less autonomy. Does that change how you run the company, especially in a market environment where activists, investors um, are strong and they're making moves? Well, you know, when you know, just prior to our IPO, right, we discussed whether a dual class structure made sense for us. And to me, as a founder CEO, taking a, a young company public, it provided a runway for us to get our footing under us as a as a young public company. And even if there are some maybe some missteps along the way, it provided us some degree of ability to execute. But we set a seven year um, uh, expiration on that because over that period of time, I would expect us to mature as a public company. And mm -hmm. I think you see that happening. 
And so I think it provided us a nice runway to get our footing. But now, you know, all along the way, we've been listening to our shareholders. We've been taking their um, input in what we're doing as we continue to do. And look, I'm a fiduciary of the company. So even though I have historically had this vote, I am representing all of our shareholders. And I think that um, you'll see the actions we've taken this week represent, right. you know, a lot of feedback that our investors have been giving us during this time. Yeah, I was going to say, certainly some of the actions you outlined on the call last night. Um, some, uh, some analysts have pointed out, though, that you could be doing more. For example, you don't have a full-time CFO, and one even suggested that you spin out your flex business. How are you thinking about those two items? Well, we do have a CFO. We appointed one. Uh, we announced it this week. Uh, Aiden Vigiano is uh, t taking on our CFO role. The current C so COO, right? Uh, no, uh, Aiden uh, led our finance organization for the past three okay. years. Uh, and so she is stepping up into the CFO role, and I'm very happy. She's a fantastic executive. Um, and then in terms of spinning out this and that, like, that's not what we're focused on. What we're focused on is building a company with synergies across our customer engagement platform. Now, in the short term, to short to medium term, what we're really focused on is profitability in our mature $3.5 billion communications business and growth and market penetration in our data and applications business. But this, the problems that these problem uh, that these products solve are very adjacent in the minds of our customers and in the buying centers. And so over time, we bring them together and build the synergies between those things, even though it, in the current investment environment, it will probably take a little bit longer to build those product bridges and some of those go-to-market motions. But nonetheless, that is our plan. Jeff Lawson, always great to get your insights. Thank you. Twilio, see you. Thank you very much. We should note as well that Twilio was once a CNBC Disruptor 50 company, and we are now accepting nominations for the 11th annual list of innovators. If you are a private venture-backed company, do scan that QR code on your screen right now or go to cnbc.com disruptors to learn more. And up next, Roku is posting a smaller-than-expected loss in its later, latest quarter. Many analysts, though, saying it's not out of the woods just yet. And then Paramount sinking after a big EPS miss tied to rising streaming and film expenses. We're going to break down both of those names in a moment. We'll be right back. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... <laughs> 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Tech Check. Let's get back to our Julia Borston this morning. She's live in Santa Monica for Snap's Investor Day. We'll get more on that later in the hour. But first, Julia, a couple media names this morning going in opposite directions. Yeah, take a look at the stock charts for Roku and Paramount. Paramount shares, they're down about 4% this morning after the company's top and bottom line results fell short of estimates, despite the fact that Paramount Plus added nearly 10 million new subscribers in the quarter. That's about 2 million more than analysts expected. The company says weakness in the ad market resulted in a 5% decline in quarterly ad revenue. The company also said that streaming operating losses, which widened in the fourth quarter, would peak in 2023. CEO Bob Backish announced that Paramount will raise prices for their streaming services, 
He also said the combination of Showtime and Paramount Plus should generate efficiencies and minimize customer churn. Interestingly, he painted a picture of an improving ad market, predicting a second half rebound. He noted that certain areas, such as food and beverage, pharma and the auto area, are already seeing some strength. Now, while that media giant is struggling, a platform for streamers is taking off. Take a look at Roku shares up over 16 percent after yesterday. The company beat expectations on the top and bottom line, guiding to better than expected first quarter revenue. CEO Anthony Wood boasting that despite tightening ad budgets, ad spending on the Roku platform outperformed. Roku also seeing strength in some of the same ad sectors that Paramount cited, including restaurants, travel, consumer packaged goods, and health and wellness, saying that those areas are actually already improving in the first quarter. So, John, the ad market may not be as bad as many had feared. Julia, it's so interesting. If you look at a chart from 2022 and what happened in January and so many stocks going like this, and then 2023 in January, like Roku and so many stocks going like this, it hardly ever happens like right at the beginning of January, but it has this time. Uh, We'll see how that bodes for the rest of the year. Julia Borston, thanks. Up next, chip design software maker Synopsys. Under pressure, even as the company reiterates its fiscal year guidance, we're going to speak with the CEO about the outlook for leading-edge chips in the AI era. Next, stay with us. A couple hours into the trading day, get you caught up on the markets after that hotter-than-expected PPI number today and some hawkish commentary from Fed President Mester. Right now, Dow losses about 200 points, although they were double that at the open. Some of your big movers at the hour, uh, Blumen Brands, a nice bump after beating estimates and reporting stronger-than-expected margins. Uh, Crocs moving higher on the back of some strong results and a pretty optimistic outlook for the year. CEO says that consumer demand has been, quote, exceptional. Data dogs in the red, but... But again, off-session lows after earnings came in lighter than expected. Stock was up more than 18% coming into that print. We'll watch all of those names and more. Let's get a news update with our Frank Hollum. Hey, Frank. Hey there, Carl. Here's what's happening at this hour. In just the last few minutes, portions of a Georgia grand jury's report on possible election interference by former President Trump and his allies has been released. The panel says one or more unnamed witnesses may have committed perjury, and it says it could not find any evidence of fraud in the election. The Michigan State shooter had two 9mm handguns that had been purchased legally but were not registered, according to a police update today into the investigation into the deaths of three students on Monday night. MSU's interim president says five hospitalized students remain in critical condition, but they are showing signs of improvement. Kentucky Supreme Court says today the state's near total ban on abortions can stay in place, but it sent back a challenge to a lower court for further consideration of issues related to the state's constitution. Last year, Kentucky voters rejected a ballot measure that would have denied constitutional protections for abortion. That's the very latest. John, back over to you. Frank, thank you. Let's turn it now to semiconductors. Shares of Synopsys are down a little less than 5% this morning on the leading edge chip design software maker's latest results. Earnings beat, revenue in line with expectations, full year guidance affirmed, here for a closer look in a CNBC exclusive synopsis, CEO Art DeGius. Art, great to have you. Uh, first, I, I want to clear up something on the quarter because um, I'm the guide for the current quarter. It looks to me like you're mostly dealing with a tough comp and 
your patterns returning to normal seasonal patterns, and you did affirm full year, but is there something else in here with maybe customers trying to delay fab rollouts or, or something that's affecting you on the design side? I don't know. No, actually, there's nothing uh, that has changed. The, the outlook is just as good as it was before, and we reiterated guidance, which is excellent, of growth uh, of 14 to 15% for the year. I think, and, and the, uh, the reason is probably on our side, that we were not clear enough how the uh, distribution over the year, quarter to quarter, was different than last year, which was somewhat extraordinary. And so we're back to the normal way of uh, quarter after quarter increasing over time. And uh, side of that, actually, uh, the, the outlook is very positive. Okay, now I, I want to get into this AI question because a lot of people might not know, you guys have the software that the leading edge semiconductor makers need to, to design the future. And with, with all of this intention on AI now, you've got this DSO.AI product. How is that uh, affecting the way you view future profitability? and the amount of sort of revenue share that you think you can get in this industry? Oh, it's extremely positive. And let me explain what we do. You know, we provide the, the tools to design chips for all of the uh, semiconductor uh, companies in the world. We also provide the basic building blocks. Think of it as little Lego pieces of designs that are finished. And, you know, the first is about 65% of our business. The second is 25%. And so we touch literally all of the advanced designs in the world. And so the reason this is so powerful is that we have now a whole new wave where design is enhanced by using the very AI for which so many customers design chips. And this has started to happen about two years, two and a half years ago. And I was surprised myself how good the results are because what they, it took many months can now be done in weeks. And at the same time, you get better results. And better results mean faster chips, hmm. lower power chips, and in some cases, also smaller chips. Now, and so, are, are, yes, at, at, at a certain point, I hate to interrupt you, but I want to sort of uh, get more elaboration in a particular area from you here. Do investors, should investors expect to see an inflection point in your financial results even? Because I believe you said on the call, unlike so many other companies in tech that are seeing longer lead times for deals, that especially when it comes to the software to enable AI, you're seeing customers make faster decisions. So how does that play out in, in the financials? Well, it plays out that, that we will have uh, hopefully continued very, very good growth in our field. Actually, today we are the, the fastest grower in, in the EDA field. And uh, these technologies are so essential that customers will try to apply them as quick as they can learn how to use them. Now, this is all pretty new, and so literally every quarter we have new and better results. And it's super exciting to see because what we saw uh, in the last year and a half is that in contrast to the past where people adopt new tools, learn how to use them, and so on, in this case, they, they use them a little bit and immediately move them to production design, meaning real designs that go to manufacturing in the year and then go to the market shortly thereafter. And so on our customer side, they really like what we're doing. And so the, the opportunity for us economically, therefore, is very positive. Mm. Now, there's negotiation, there's all, all of that, but uh, there's no doubt that over the last few years, Synopsys has a higher growth ramp than before, okay. and we expect that to continue. Well, eager to see, Art, whether Synopsys becomes sort of a, an AI growth bellwether uh, as, as you do so much design work 
for the, the critical uh, chip underpinning of that. Art DeGius, the CEO of Synopsys, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And up next, Airbnb coming off a massive earnings beat. I sat down with CEO Brian Chesky, and we'll bring you his comments on M&A and plans for growth, plus what to expect from DoorDash when it reports after the market close. Stay with us. We're back in a minute. Airbnb shares take a look. They're bucking the overall trend and they're moving higher for a second straight day since reporting results that suggests Brian Chesky and team have achieved the kind of efficiency and profitability other tech companies are now scrambling to show. But what's next? I asked Chesky if this is as profitable as Airbnb gets and if they're looking for other businesses or other revenue streams to drive growth going forward and justify that pricey multiple we've been talking about. We absolutely want additional revenue channels. I mean, Nike started as running shoes. That's a minority of its revenue today. Apple started as a Macintosh. That's a minority of its revenue. Amazon started selling books. That's a minority of revenue. And I want one day for staying in a home on a short-term basis to be the minority of revenue in Airbnb. He wouldn't tell us where exactly they'd be going, but I asked him if M&A was on the table to get there. Now that the company is sitting on nearly $10 billion in cash, he said that the bar is high, but even larger billion-dollar-plus deals are not off the table. Meanwhile, guys, DoorDash, another sharing economy company that went public around the same time during the pandemic, it has been more aggressive about investing and diversifying. It entered new markets through its Volt acquisition. It's gone more vertical through its Dash Mart. Those are owned and operated micro-fulfillment centers. That has come at a cost, though. Net losses have increased, and it trades at a lower multiple um, than its peers, and Airbnb specifically. Those rising costs will be in focus when it reports tonight. We'll also hear from DoorDash CEO Tony Hsu tomorrow on the show. But, John, when it comes to this cost question, they rose 46 percent in the third quarter. So given the moment we're in when investors are looking for that profitability and rewarding it very handsomely, um, what's he has he been able to decrease that? We know that they've done layoffs, for example. Yeah, I just think the that DoorDash and Airbnb are two entirely different kinds of companies. And even though there was this sort of like gig economy, sharing economy thing that we were talking about for a long time, I don't think that's necessarily the right way to look at these companies anymore. I mean, uh, Brian Chesky and Airbnb don't have to build a logistics network. Houses don't go anywhere, right? But a big part of what Tony Hsu is trying to do at DoorDash is solve this last mile logistics delivery challenge. It's, it's, more, like, it's more like Amazon right, uh, versus eBay in the day. People used to think those two companies were alike, but that logistics supply chain uh, thing turned out to be pretty key. Okay, I I have to disagree with you there because I think that DoorDash is looking more like a logistics network, and that was a choice that Tony Hsu has made. You could be an Uber and not build out this sort of series of dash marts where you have more ownership over your customer, more ownership over that last mile delivery. And when you look at the two side by side, maybe Uber is a better example if you're looking at the delivery space. Um, and I have to look at the numbers, but Uber's talking a lot about reaching adjusted EBITDA profitability. In fact, it has, and so has DoorDash, by the way. Um, but what does that look like going forward And my question is, does that capital investment by going vertical sort of weigh on the stock at a time when investors want more profitability? I didn't hear the disagreement, though. I mean, it sounds like you're agreeing with me, at least uh, on the Airbnb comparison. They're not really alike. 
Well, well, Airbnb once before the pandemic, Carl, you were actually at this interview when we talked to Brian Chesky about this. This was years ago before they went public. He was actually looking to build out sort of their own brand of hotels. You remember it was, I think, Rockefeller Center. They were going, they had plans and they were going to operate it themselves. And he backed away from that ambition that would have been incredibly capital intensive during the pandemic. Yeah, I was just, uh, just charting out Uber versus Dash D. Uh, and when you think about what uh, Dara said about menu inflation stabilizing a bit, certainly the metrics you talked about. But Dash is still underperforming Uber for the, uh, year, for the past 12 months by almost mm-hmm. 30 points. Uh, so we'll see if that uh, gap narrows. Meantime, during February, we are celebrating black heritage through some of the stories of our CNBC teammates and contributors and leaders in business. Here are Earn Your Leisure founders Troy Millings and Rashad Bilal. Our culture has been the catalyst for everything Earn Your Leisure has done. That's why we've been so super intentional. From the way we dress, to the way we talk, to the way our message is delivered. Our success has been extremely humble and we have gained worldwide support, but we never forget that we stand on the shoulders of our forefathers and our goal is to leave a legacy for generations to come. Let's bring in our final mover of the hour, and that shares of toast in free fall today, down, as you can see, about 19%. Uh, revenue beat, take rates on the rise, guidance in line, but it's this deeper-than-expected loss per share uh, that's weighing on the stock. For more on the quarter, we're joined by Toast CEO Chris Comparato in a CNBC exclusive. Chris, appreciate you coming on. Um, is there something the street's not getting about the guide? Yeah, thanks for having me on again, Carl. Um, you know, the street, I, I, I'm not going to worry too much about the street and the numbers today. We had a great quarter. If you look at our quarter, we delivered on strong top line growth. ARR grew 59% year over year. We had further margin improvement quarter over quarter. And then we had strong product innovation, extending the reach of our platform into our customer base. So that's what we're focused on. We're focused on the long-term opportunity to help the restaurant industry digitally transform. You know, I think the market's been expecting, you know, one of the analysts told us this morning, the market's been expecting perfection. And um, and listen, we strive for per- perfect execution and continuous improvement. But at the end of the day, we had a great quarter. So I'm not going to worry too much about the numbers today. Right. You know, your results come a day after retail sales where I mean, I know they're nominal numbers, but restaurants and bars in this country, I mean, it's just incredible the way in which the consumer is responding to eating out. I just wonder, are you waiting for a moment in which the merchant themselves decides it's, it's incumbent upon them to invest in their own business? Yeah, it's a great question. Listen, if you look at the course of the past two and a half years, the restaurant industry and our merchants have been incredibly resilient and incredibly battle-tested. So while the consumer continues to hold up, and um, we're obviously very anxious and excited about that, you know, we're, we're making sure that our merchants and restaurants are ready to adapt and be resilient. So when you look at, you know, we did a voice of the customer industry survey last quarter, restaurants continue to struggle with labor shortages, food inflation, how to engage their team, and our platform really helps our customers strengthen their position on those three dimensions. Yesterday, or this morning on the earnings call, I mentioned uh, a restaurant called Silver Diner, 21 units in the mid-Atlantic. And when they deploy Toast, they're seeing their wait staff much more productive, turning one to two tables more you know, per staff, 
And then they're seeing their table turn times decrease by 30 to 40%. So that's all about driving productivity into the restaurant and then also helping them shine a light on food cost inflation so that they have better menus, better recipes, and they can drive their margins to the next level. But yeah. it's been incredibly resilient and, and that's what excites us about the road ahead. Hey, Chris, it's John Fort. Yeah, Silver Diner, I think in Rockville, I used to go there uh, weekends in high school. So uh, I think investors probably need to know, is anything changing with the velocity of growth and your strategy? I mean, I know in, in Q4, correct me if I'm wrong here, incremental locations were about 5,000. They had been 6,000 in the two quarters prior. And payment volume was down, which you warned it would be uh, just because it's a Q4. But uh, is there anything underlying with the macro that's shifting what you see happening with the business? No, what we see internally is just continuous improvement on the key unit economics. Last year, we added 23,000 locations to the platform. We actually added 5,500 locations in Q4, which was very, very similar to Q3. Usually Q4 is a little bit of a lighter quarter. Payments volumes took a little bit of a dip, but that's seasonality. So we feel really strong and confident going into 2023. That's what I've been telling our analysts this morning. That's what I'll be telling investors tomorrow. But we're excited about their, the position that we're in to really help the restaurant industry thrive in the, in the year ahead. Chris, appreciate you communicating with the street, at least uh, with us. Uh, always good to talk to you and get a sense of where the business is. Chris Comparato over at Toast. Thanks. Thanks. And after the break, we are live in Santa Monica for Snap's Investor Day. CEO Evan Spiegel joining CNBC later this afternoon. Shares are down 35% in the past three years. We will see what Spiegel says about long-term strategy. Tech Check is back in just a moment. Welcome back. Snaps Investor Day, we mentioned earlier, kicking off in just a few minutes at the top of the hour. Our Julia Borston is on site in Santa Monica ahead of an interview with CEO Evan Spiegel later today. Uh, Julia, last three quarters, we've talked about it every time, have been, I guess, net disappointments. Yeah, I mean, there's so many questions here. And it's interesting because Snap was one of the first tech companies to do layoffs. They did layoffs back in August. And now it's been almost six months since then. And the question is, what is the roadmap for growth for this company. They've talked about ad headwinds, Carl, and they had worse advertising results in this most recent quarter than, say, Meta did. But just take a look at this company's stock price. I mean, it's just been such a roller coaster. It's been down 72% over the past year, but it's actually up 22% year to date. So, so many questions about what's in store. They have this new subscription service. And then just overall, how are they engaging with advertisers right now? Um, Julia, I wonder um, if there's a credibility question here. I mean, the last time that Evan Spiegel did this and set out those long-term targets just to kind of take them away later. So how are investors supposed to kind of believe anything coming out of this today? Well, look, the market has changed dramatically in the past two years or so since Snap did one of these investor days. But I think what we're going to be looking for in this presentation that starts in just a couple of minutes is a sense of what they see their differentiation being, right? So TikTok has been incredibly successful. We see Meta continuing to grow um, and to benefit from the scale. But Snap is really a different product. It's more about curated premium content. It's more about communication. How are they using that to strengthen their relationship 
with their particular customers to make sure they hold on to those and then to generate even more revenue. So I think that demographic that they have is a little bit unique. And the question is just how big can their user base get if it is very different um, from the sort of broader user base that is Meta's? And then what's their outlook for this ad market? I mean, just earlier this hour, we were talking about how everyone sees the ad market being weak, but there is an expectation of a rebound in the second half of the year. When you're dealing with the types of ads that Snap has, you could turn those ads on and off with the click of a button, which can be an advantage if the market is good, but it can also be a disadvantage if you're looking for places to pull back. Yeah, interesting coming off of the heels of uh, Backish's comments about the ad market, but that's a much different model, as you point out, uh, uh, Julia, than, than the programmatic. Uh, Julia Borston will watch for that with Evan uh, later this afternoon. John? Yeah, one more thing, Carl, before we go. We started the hour with the New York Fed saying that household debt saw the largest increase in 20 years, and they're seeing increases in delinquency rates. I spoke to NerdWallet CEO Tim Chen after its earnings report. That stuff's up 6.5% today, by the way, and it's doubled year to date. Uh, the company is seeing similar pressure on consumers, particularly subprime. It's definitely a tale of two cities. Um, inflation is hitting a lot of consumers hard. Um, and at the same time, there's a really, really tight job market, right? So uh, we're, we're definitely seeing a bit of a bifurcation there. Um, and so, yeah, like, like I said, you know, people are getting a little late on their payments in the more uh, subprime part of the credit spectrum. And that's causing a lot more caution from the lenders out there. You can catch the entire conversation with Tim Chen on the Tech Check LinkedIn page, CNBC Tech Check D. It's interesting, look ahead to Intuit earnings coming up in just a few days. Um, Credit Karma is a bit bigger than NerdWallet, mm -hmm. but similar space. Tim Chen arguing that even though they're smaller, NerdWallet is a little bit less on the subprime right. end, so that's why they might have some different results. You know, I like NerdWallet and I use it, but it did occur to me that it's sort of an aggregator and you can choose which kind of financial product is good for you. These side-by-side -side comparisons. How does generative AI change that? I just typed in, you know, what's the best credit card? And I got to say, ChatGPT gave me a pretty similar answer as what I saw on the NerdWallet well, website. Unfortunately, you will not find that in my conversation with Tim that's actually on the video, but we talked about it after. He said, I'm surprised you didn't ask me about that. And Carl, he said he sees some potential in the use of that to give tailored financial advice. I said, I don't know, you got to be careful. With, a, with software, with a robot telling people about money. It seems like there's some legal issues there. Uh, yeah, it's all about what goes in uh, is going to give you what comes out. I mean, fascinating interview with uh, Krishna in the FT from IBM talking about uh, the prospects for at least uh, disinflationary trends regarding labor around the world because of AI. Um, but yeah, it's going to be, uh, you didn't get any fights with ChatGPT, did you? Because that's the other story not. right now. It's how I, they can, I, it can I mean, get a little spicy. I need like two hours to try that, I think. Um, but it is creepy, <laughs> creepy. Yeah, we're definitely getting there. Let's get to the judge in the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.